we're focusing on Psalm 42. And actually, this psalm was written by David in the very beginning. If you look in, in your um, Bibles, it will say um, that in like the Hebrew is basically what it's saying is to sing it together in a community. So this was written to be sung together in a community. So this idea that we're singing together some heavy stuff. And I wish that we still had the music that David wrote, because I just have a feeling that the music and the words together would have helped us recognize that we are experiencing a range of emotions here in this psalm. Deep heartache, confusion, anger with God, and also this deep longing to connect with God. And in the psalm, over and over again, David says, why? He asks the question, why, over and over again. So Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are most likely one whole psalm. And if you look at both of those psalms together, David asks the question, why, ten times. Why? Why do I feel this way? And why can't I stop feeling this way? And I think we can all relate to that feeling where we feel so sad, and yet we know God is there. We know the truth and the hope that we have in God, and yet we can't get past the feelings of sadness. And still, there's this tendency in Christian culture um, that we kind of feel like we need to rush through those feelings of sadness. There's well-meaning responses that are kind of classic um, well-meaning, but oftentimes a bit tone-deaf responses that Christians can have to people when they're sharing and pouring out their sadness to one another. Um, responses like, you know, why worry? God's on the throne. Or, you know, God will never give you more than you can handle. When uh, God closes a door, he always opens a window. Does he? I don't, you know, where's that? Um, or the response you know, somebody's sharing how, hard, how much they're hurting, and, and we say, you know, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good, right? It's well-meaning, but a bit tone-deaf, and the underlying mes message that can be received is, you know, good Christians, they don't really worry. They don't feel sadness. They, um, they just are able to praise God all the time, so, you know, if you could just sing a happy tune, you'll get over it. But what amazes me in this psalm, Psalm 42, is that in it, David is both deeply sad and hurting and also trusting at God, with God at the same time. It's not one or the other in this psalm. It's both at the same time. And so he is sad, and he says things like, his tears have been food, his food both day and night. His tears have been his food both day and night. That's deep sadness. It makes me think of my own um, experience with depression when I was in college. There was a time that I really struggled with um, depression and anxiety, and I lost a bunch of weight because I just wasn't hungry. I just um, lost all pleasure in food because I was just so sad. And that's the kind of deep sadness that David is expressing here. But when we look at verse 8, he also says, by day the Lord directs his love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. 
So we see that he, both day and night, he is so sad that his tears are his food. And still, and day and night, he is receiving God's love, and he's giving God back his love for him. Both sadness and connection with God at the same time. So why do we feel the need to kind of rush through our sadness and our tears? I just really don't see God doing that in Scripture to those people who are suffering and hurting. In fact, when we look over and over again in Scripture, God is constantly drawing closer to people who are suffering and weeping. So I'm just going to walk through some of those stories. Um, one that came to mind for me was one of my favorite uh, stories, not because it's a happy story, but it just um, really shows who God is. It's a story that's found in Genesis 21, and it's about a woman named Hagar. She is essentially a single mother, and she is sent away with her son, Ishmael, who um, are sent away by Ishmael's father, Abraham. Basically, they are inconvenient to his new family. And so he sends them away. They're in the desert, and they are in a desperate situation. They are without food and water, and it's so desperate that Hagar um, hears her son's cry for his, he's thirsty, um, they are without water, he's at the end, and she is feeling completely alone. There is nobody there to help her. And it says that she puts her son down, and she goes away, and she says to herself, I cannot watch my son die. And it says in Genesis that she sits down and she sobs. Of course she would sob watching this happen, feeling so alone, watching this happen to her son. But it says in verse 17 that God heard the boy crying, and he sent an angel um, to Hagar, and he says, I have heard your son's cries. Do not be afraid. And then she opens her eyes, and she sees that there is a well of water there, and she is able to go fill her containers with water and, and save her son and give him a drink. That's just one story of God hearing the cries of the people who are alone. And Hagar says, you are the God who sees me. Nobody else sees my pain right now, but you are the God who sees me. And then in 1 Samuel, we see another woman, Hannah, who is crying because she wants a child. And she can't have a child over and over again, that disappointment because she can't have a child. And so she goes to the temple and she cries and she calls out to God in her pain. And it says that God heard her cries and comfort comforted her. And of course, we know that um, she eventually had a son named Samuel. Another man we meet in deep despair is a man named Job. A whole book of Job is about this man who was very obedient, close to God, and still um, terrible things happen to Job. He, he loses his whole family. He loses his um, wealth. And in his despair and mourning and anger, he throws that all of those emotions to God. And what we see in Job is this contrast between how God handles that and how his friends handle it. And I think we learn a lot about how um, we sometimes handle our own friends when they are struggling with sadness and despair. And so his friends sit with him and listen to him after he's lost so much, and they're just kind of trying to figure out why it all happened, right? Because that kind of brings them comfort. If they can figure out why it happened, then maybe they can hope that it won't happen to them. And so they're looking for the answers, leaving Job completely 
alone in his sadness. And then we see God, who even though Job is very angry with him, he still draws nearer to Job and listens to his pain, and he comforts him. The Psalms are filled with mentions of God's attention to those who are in pain and sorrow. In Psalms 56, there's this beautiful psalm where David talks about how God keeps track of our tears, our sorrow, that he records them, that he saves them in a bottle. This figurative language is used to kind of make us think of how precious our emotions are to God. And I think about, you know, the things that I've saved as a mother of my children. You know, I saved the bracelet from each of them when they were in the hospital and when they were born. You know, locks of hair, um, the first coloring page that they made in kindergarten. I kept those because they were precious to me. And that's what our tears are like to God, that they are precious to him. Not that he is disappointed in us because we are sad, but they are precious to us. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. We see another example of God's patient, patience with somebody who's suffering in the example of the prophet Elijah. There's this um, story in 1 Kings where Elijah, you know, he's working for God. He's doing great things, and he just becomes depressed. He's running um, for his life, and he's exhausted, and he's ready to give up. And he even says to God, I, I, I would rather die. I'm, I'm done. And what God does is send an angel to Elijah to nurse him back to health. And we see that the angel provides food and water and allows Elijah to rest. And I just think of the image of a nurse or a parent sitting next to their sick child, just caring for them with love and comfort, not wanting to leave because they care so deeply about that person. And that is the, the mercy the care and the comfort that Elijah receives. And then it says when he is strengthened, he gets up and he wants to be in God's presence. And so he goes on this long journey, a 40-day journey, to go to the presence of God on Mount Horeb where um, Moses receives the Ten Commandments, and it's known as the mountain of God. And so he's thinking, I need to be in God's presence. That's where I will go. And so God meets him there. And he says to him in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11, he says, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. He's speaking of himself here. For the Lord is about to pass by. And so there's this dramatic scene where uh, Elijah goes out on the mountain and this powerful wind comes and it shakes the mountain and, and rocks fall. But it says that the Lord wasn't in the wind. And then after this wind comes, then an earthquake comes. And then it says that the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there's a fire. But the Lord isn't in the fire. It says that after the fire came a gentle whisper. Some translations even say the sound of silence. That is where God was, in the gentle whisper, in the sound of silence. And it says, when Elijah heard that, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out in the mouth of the cave and stood in the presence of God. And we see that God doesn't shame Elijah for his sadness. 
for his depression, for his um, desire to give up, he instead comforts him. And it's in his gentle whisper that Elijah is strengthened and he's able to continue with his job as a prophet. We see another prophet, the prophet Jeremiah, who is known actually as the weeping prophet because over and over again, if you read through the book of Jeremiah, you see him literally shedding tears for the injustice that he's witnessing around him. He's broken by it. He writes um, the book of Lamentation, which is basically just crying out to God about his sadness, just like we did this morning. And what's interesting is God chose Jeremiah, this man who was so close to his emotions that was constantly breaking down in tears. He chose that man to be his voice for his people. And then we see Jesus, Jesus God coming to earth, being fully human, experiencing and expressing the full range of emotions. And not only does he, is he able to share his own emotions, we see him sharing them all, but he's also very comfortable just being with other people while they express and experience deep pain and sadness. There's many stories as you look through the Gospels of Jesus doing this. Um, one that comes to mind is found in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus is just with his disciples and he's walking through town and he sees this widow and they are bearing her only son. And so she has lost the ability to take care of herself. I mean, as a widow, she would have either needed a husband or a son to take care of her. She's all alone, kind of like Hagar was. And it says that she's, she's crying out. And Luke says that Jesus, his heart goes out to her, that he has compassion on her. And he goes to her and he raises her son. Another story where his dear friends, Mary and Martha, they've lost their brother, Lazarus, and so he arrives and tries to comfort them, and they're frustrated with Jesus. They're like, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have had to die. And what's interesting is that Jesus could have immediately raised Lazarus. Even though he had been dead a while, he could have immediately raised him from the dead. But instead, he stops, and he's present with his friends in their emotion. And it even says that he cries with them. So these are the examples for us of how God is close to those people who are hurting and suffering. It's our ex example with Jesus. Why then do we feel like we have to rush ourselves and others through sadness, through anxiety or frustration? Last week I read a blog uh, post by a mother who she shared just her experience um, with her son, her four-year-old son, who had this special prized stuffed animal named Glenn that, she, um, that he slept with every night his whole life. And so he was very special. And what they realized towards the end of the night was that Glenn was missing. And then they realized that Glenn was left in the back seat of their, the little boy's grandmother's car who drove home several hours away. And so they began to panic realizing they weren't going to be able to get Glenn back. And the little boy started to cry, of course, because he was sad. 
He was sad to be separated, and he was afraid. He was afraid to go to sleep without his stuffed animal. And so the mother said she looked at her husband, and she saw the panic in his eyes. Like, <laughs> what are we going to do? And she said she could see him trying to figure out how to stop the sadness, like how to fix it for his son so he wouldn't have to feel sad. And what he realized was he couldn't do it. He couldn't fix it that he was just going to have to be sad. And that his, and she saw her husband, he was completely uncomfortable with that knowledge. And she realized that there was a, a tendency for them to say, okay, what can we do to kind of um, distract him from his sadness? Could we give him a cookie, some candy, maybe a new toy and distract him from feeling sad? Or maybe we can, you know, make him stop crying because this makes us feel uncomfortable. His sadness is making me uncomfortable. And so I could say to him, stop crying. You're a big boy. Big boys don't cry, right? But the mother said that she remembered in that moment her own struggle with sadness and how she had gone to therapy to get some help through her time of depression and sadness and that the therapist helped her with an illustration of um, your pain being like a train that's going through a tunnel. Maybe you've heard this before, but for her, the therapist described that as a, a train is going through a tunnel, it has to go through the tunnel to get to its destination. And when you're going through that tunnel, you have no idea how long it's going to last. Um, unless you've done it before, you know that you just kind of have to be present and wait for the light to come at the end of the tunnel. It doesn't help to get off the train and, and just pretend like you aren't in a tunnel. You have to get through to the end. And so as that mother was remembering that analogy, she, um, she decided to do something different. Instead of distracting her son or trying to get him to stop crying, she decided to just be present with her son in his sadness. And so at first she just sat next to him and just making her presence known letting him cry, not shushing him or trying to um, make him stop. And then after a while, she started to just comfort him, patting his back, making him know that she was there. And she said that she was afraid that he was never going to stop crying. He cried and he cried. But then she looked at her watch, and when he, he finally was ready to kind of talk about his emotions, kind of make a plan for what they were going to do, she said it had only been eight minutes. Eight minutes of just being present with his mom, getting the tears out, and then he was okay. In the book, Hold On to Your Kids, the authors Gordon Newfeld and Gaber Mates say this. They say, a parent must dance the child to his tears. I love that. A parent must dance the child to his tears, to letting go, and to the sense of rest that comes in the wake of letting go. A parent must come alongside the child's experience of frustration and provide comfort. The agenda shouldn't, shouldn't be to teach a lesson, but to move frustration to sadness. And much more important than our words is the child's sense that we are with her and not against her. Now, I have to admit, not everybody gets a parent who is that comfortable with dancing their child to their tears. But I love that image that it brings because that is what God does with us. 
It's what we see him doing with David and so many other characters throughout the Bible that in our tears and in our sadness, he doesn't rush us through them, but he patiently is present with us and he comforts us in our sadness. And oftentimes we are more like the children who um, want to kind of be distracted by the sadness and the pain. And so maybe we don't eat cookies and candy, maybe we do, um, but we'll use other things like alcohol or online shopping or Netflix or playing games on our phone, scrolling through Facebook and Instagram, these things that help distract us from really feeling our emotions. But that isn't what helps us get through the tunnel of pain. Instead, we really have to be present with our emotions. Also, knowing at the same time that God is there with us and he's drawing near to our broken hearts and he's listening to our pain and our confusion. And the truth is, if we want to be parents and we want to be friends who are able to comfort and be present with others in their pain, then we have to be able to be present with our own emotions. And that's how we see God being with us. He provides comfort through the frustration. He draws out our cleansing tears. There's so many times that people will say, I don't know what it is about going to church, but every time I'm there, I, I just feel like crying. That's not a bad thing. It's God drawing out our cleansing tears. They're good. He shows empathy to our struggle. Why? Because he's a God who has experienced our humanity. He knows what it feels to hurt and to feel the emotions of sadness and anger and frustration. He allows us to learn our lessons naturally without having a heavy-handed kind of um, lesson, like you should learn this lesson from this emotion. That's not how God is with us. And he supports us throughout the journey patiently walking alongside us through that emotion. And that's how we can be present with people as well. We can be empathetic to their struggles. We can provide comfort. We can um, allow them their cleansing tears without showing that they make us uncomfortable at all. We can just let them learn their own lessons without telling them, you know what you should learn from this? Just let them learn that on their own and patiently walk through them with um, their emotions, no matter how long it lasts, hoping with them that there is light at the end of the tunnel. That is how we can be present with people in their struggles. At the beginning of Psalm 42, these beautiful words are written by David. He says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? When can I go and meet with God? David knew that in his pain, this deep pain that he's expressing, asking why, why can't I stop feeling this way, that what he needed was to be present with God. That he describes it as that need that a deer would need, searching for water that refreshing stream of water. It's what we see Hagar needing, and Hannah, and Job, and Elijah, and Jeremiah. They needed God's presence. They needed to be with God, that refreshing, comforting presence of God. And so we take their example 
And in our pain, we strive to actually feel our feelings, not distract from them. We feel our feelings and we seek God's presence. We can do them both at the same time. And so today I want us all to experience one way that we can do that, um, one way that Christians have sought to do this for many generations. It's a spiritual practice known as an examine. It was first taught by um, St. Ignatius of Loyola um, 400 years ago. So we've talked about some of um, the different things, the uh, prayer of indifference that um, St. Ignatius taught, um, the practices of discernment that he taught, and this is another one, the examine. So it's a practice that today Jesuits are encouraged to practice twice a day, um, and many Christian contemplatives from lots of different Christian backgrounds also use this as a way to be present with God and also present in their emotions. And so today we're going to um, do an extended examine with a video. It's a beautiful video um, that we're going to watch together. And what I want you to do is really strive to be present with God. Allow the music and the words to lead you through that presence with this moment, the presence with your emotions, and presence with God. There are lots of different resources available to help you do this on your own. Um, I included at the bottom of the sheets with Psalm 42, there's a link to a website that gives lots of different resources of different ways um, that you can do the exam. And I even noticed there was one to do on, on the subway, on your subway ride, um, which was very convenient for us. Um, but lots of different ways to use an exam. But every exam has five different stages. And so those stages are, the first stage is to become aware of God's presence. The second stage is to review the day with gratitude. The third is to pay attention to your emotions. The next stage, choose one feature of the day and pray from it. And then the last stage is to look towards tomorrow. And so right now we're going to just um, go through the examine with a video. Let yourself be present with God now. So you can start that video. Today's the end of the David experience, but it we are always going to be on this journey of feeling comfortable and getting comfortable, of um, feeling our feelings of sadness and anger and frustration and repentance, all of those uncomfortable but very necessary parts of our humanity. And so hopefully through this series, you have learned how um, through David's life, his example, through looking at Psalms, through praying through the Psalms, you've maybe even through the examine just now, you've learned examples and ways to try to not rush through those emotions, but to be present in them. And all of us can choose to be like David, a man after God's own heart, and to seek to be in his presence as if it is the very water that sustains us. So this morning as I close, I'm just going to pray, um, pray together for that, um, that we would be a people who are um, comfortable with our own emotions and comfortable with one another's. Let's pray. God, I was just struck by, um, in the examine the couple times that it talked about being curious instead of going to judgment. And um, 
I think we see that in, in Psalm 42, that David's like just asking the questions. And um, I just, I pray that we could do that, not um, judge ourselves or judge others when we are experiencing sadness, but to be able to just be curious, God, what are you doing? How are you coming to me through my emotions? What are you teaching me? And just trusting that your spirit is going to guide us, guide us through this no matter how awful and terrible and um, heartsick we are, that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Lord, I pray that we would seek your presence and that we could be present with one another. May we be a people who are constantly getting better at being aware of our own emotions um, so that we can sit very comfortably with others who are suffering, that we can have mercy and empathy with them, but never push them. Just patiently be present with them. Lord, teach us to be more like you, that we can feel comfortable drawing near to the brokenhearted. We see that's where you wanted to be, Lord, and I pray that we would um, gain strength from your presence so that that's where we can be. And we... Ask that all in your name, Jesus. Amen.